Luke alone is with me. I was taken captive by 2 Timothy this week, and I don't know if it'll ever let go. I hope it won't. I knew the book a little bit, but not well enough. And seeing it on the docket, I was trying to figure out how these three all tied together. It wasn't until yesterday I finally gave up on the other two and said, I just got to give you all I can from, from 2 Timothy. We're there in 2 Timothy because of Luke. Luke is almost an unknown quantity in the book. But we know this, that he's with Paul when Paul writes this book. Well, then when did, when did Paul write this book? And that's what makes it so endearing to me. This is probably the last thing he ever writes that we have a record of. It may not be, but probably the last letter he writes. This is putting him then around 68 or 69 A.D. Jerusalem will fall to Caesar a year later. He is in prison in Rome, and the Caesar at the moment is named Nero. You may have heard of that guy. He liked to crucify Christians and then light them on fire at his dinner parties while he ate. Well, Paul's on trial in front of this guy. And the only Christian that remains a leader with him, anybody who has traveled with him, anybody who he knows and can trust, the only one who's left is Luke. Everyone else has left. Most of them, I think, Crescens, Titus, Tychicus, they're going and basically saying Paul's going to die and I'm here with letters, right? Or I'm here with information or they're traveling as, as pastors and preachers. But you got this guy Demas who pretty clearly has uh, just abandoned him. And you have this moment where even though he says Luke is with him, he says that when he, when he was standing on trial, everyone abandoned him. So I, I want a best construction, Luke. I can imagine Paul telling Luke, yeah, don't come. <laughs> You're going to get arrested. They'll kill you. So don't come. But yet he had to stand alone. And then the bit about Alexander the coppersmith, I mean, I'm, I'm going to tie some clues together. This may or may not be right, but it's pretty close to what tradition holds. Okay, Alexander the coppersmith, you remember, this is the guy who he ran into over in Asia Minor. And when he was preaching Christ and people were converting, it was slowing down the trade of idols in the town. That one of the benefits of having false gods is you can sell golden statues and tell people that pray to it and they'll give you good stuff, right? And so when that, when that slowed down, that lucrative market, uh, an entire host of metalsmiths go after Paul. This is much earlier in his life. Why is he mentioning it here? Well, I, I got to assume that somehow after he's in prison once and released and goes and does more missionary work, why does he get arrested again? Well, this guy, Alexander the coppersmith, has been following him for like 20 years, 15 years, building a case, moving through the systems of Roman law, trying to get Paul and Christianity stopped because it's going to mess with his money. <laughs> yeah? I love Paul's response, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. This isn't I hate him. This is just, well, I mean, if you're going to be evil, so be it. I'm not going to pity you in that point. But he warns Timothy, beware of him. And then again, he was uh, alone in his first defense. And yet, this bit about the lion's mouth here at the end, I got to believe also, he could have been killed that first defense when he was alone when even Luke was not with him. But instead, he was not killed. He was allowed to live longer in prison. He was not thrown to the lions, and we know he never will be. Uh, he will be rescued from every evil deed. Of course, we know he will be crucified. So the rescue from his own personal evil deeds is his own crucifixion. And that's what we want to see this morning. 
So having gotten to kind of the end there and all the minutia of say hi to this person, say hi to that person, which is really important. I mean, imagine, you know you're going to get killed and you get one letter out. You're going to talk to people. Yeah, bring me the parchments if you can. Those actual copies of like Isaiah, I want that. <laughs> I want to pass that on to somebody. I don't know what that meant. But it, you can hear his earnestness in this section. Now, going back a little bit then to chapter 3, and we'll have to, I'll have to open my Bible to do that here. Um, not giving you the whole book, but picking up in chapter 3, there is a good amount of encouragement and warning then for those of us who do not face a life of certain death. There's no way, I mean, unlikely, I should say, that you face certain death this week, right? And yet, what, what I've found in the last six months of my life, the post-COVID experience, is that while I don't think I necessarily face certain death, I can face death this week or next month or a year from now, and I'm more aware of that than I was before COVID came around. I kind of was laboring under the assumption that death was a ways away for me. Who can blame me? I'm 40 years old. I'm pretty healthy, right? But that's just not reality. The idea that you know how long you're going to have. And so then to watch Paul wrestle with knowing he doesn't have any more time and how he takes it, what he does with that, well, that encouraged me to look at my experience of wrestling with the possibility of death and how poorly I've handled it up to this point, I would have to say. It's been kind of like a, I'm a bit scared and nervous. Will someone please tell me what to do approach? And I'm not sure that's exactly what the man of God's supposed to do in any situation, honestly. Pretty confident he's supposed to know what to do according to the scriptures and at the very least fall on his knees and say, thy will be done, Lord, right? So I at least want more of that in my life. And that's what I think Paul gives us here, right? So we're going to try to just eat a little this morning, starting in chapter 3, verse 1, where I read it already this morning for the announcements. That you are to know that in the last days, perilous times will come. And we have to stop right there and make sure we really know what we're talking about. In the last days, perilous times will come. The vast majority of people who see that think it's about the escalation of events right before the end of the world where things will get worse across the world in some way we can see and thus know we're in the last days. There are many problems with this understanding, but the chief of which is that it has no idea why the phrase last days is being used at all. The word phrase last days or latter days, you might have heard the old translations much better, latter days is opposite of something else called the former days. You can find it in the New Testament. What are the former days? They're the days before Jesus showed up. They're the Old Testament, the former days. So what are the latter days? The days after Jesus showed up, the days since he died, rose, ascended, and sat down on his throne, right? So when the Jehovah's Witnesses call themselves the Latter-day Saints, and they mean they showed up in the 1700s, you can know they're full of nonsense because the latter days have been ever since he ascended. And you know that in those latter days, ever since he ascended, there will come perilous times. Not one perilous time, endless perilous times, up and down and up and down on the roller coaster of life, perilous times. Nation rising against nation, people against people, people making pacts with death and money, hoping to escape, people finding out it doesn't work over and over again. Big, small, you alone, you with your town. That's life as we try to escape the perilous times. And in that then, this whole section, verses 2 and following, you get a description of what you should expect, not only your flesh, meaning your heart by itself, just left alone in a corner, but then because anybody who is not a Christian or not in a religion that at least teaches that these things are wrong is going to be like this. I'm going to say all of that again. He's going to give us a list of things humans are good at being, and they're all bad. And if you don't have a religion that tells you not to do them, then you're going to be doing them. And of the religions in the world that exist, 
exist. Only three to five tell people not to do this stuff. And there's a lot of other religions out there and they're gaining ground. So I would encourage you to hear this, even if you're, I mean, don't get me wrong. Christianity is the only way to be saved, right? But, but there, is, there is the knowledge of evil that even the evil can know. And we should be able to call this out for what it is. Okay, so here's the list. Lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal. You get the feeling this wants to wear you out with all the words, right? He kind of does. Despisers of the good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness and denying his power. Now zoom in on 5B, okay? It ends the list. 5B says, and from such people turn away. There's a list of stuff that you know, every single one of them, if you look at it, you have some inside your heart and you're sorry for it and you wish you weren't like that. That's fine. That's good. That's what Christians do. That's not why it's here though. It's here to tell you there are people who are only like that. And it's anybody who's not a Christian, they're going to be only like that. And so turn away from listening to them. It doesn't mean never hear anything they say or don't buy food from them at the grocery store. It means don't let them talk to you like they're telling the truth because they're not. We bought a house recently, and I knew this was coming because of that, but I didn't remember until it came. I got that letter. Have you seen these? It says on the outside, open immediately. Important government documents within. <gasps> open it up. <sighs> if you don't act by this date, you'll be unable to get this document, which you're supposed to have, probably, for $80. Do it right now. Sign right here. Just push us. Go. Well, I, I tore it up. I've seen it before. It's a complete lie. It's a scam. You don't need that document. They just want you to send 80 bucks. They'll send you a document and you can get it for like 15 or something. It's a scam. Well, I didn't get angry until two days later I saw my wife holding it up over the sink because she had a different one. The liars just keep lying. Do I need to tell my children about this so when they grow up they're ready? How do we prepare for it? Be prepared for it by believing there's liars and avoiding people who you know are in religions that don't teach the truth, like atheism, <laughs> like Islam. There are a lot of good Muslims out there, but they don't know about Jesus' resurrection. They do not teach the truth on that matter. Why would anybody who is not saved by grace, knowing they're going to stand righteous on the last day, not look out for themselves now? And if you think they would, you're lying to yourself. Moving on from that then, avoiding the bad models is his point right? Don't follow bad models. He gives some examples. I won't dig into Janice and Jambres and those who sneak into weak widows' households. However, I would say St. Paul Lutheran Church, the last two and a half years um, has been an experiment in that, I think, and uh, let the reader understand. Let's jump on to verse 10, where he talks about how Timothy is different than all this. You, Timothy, he says, have carefully followed a couple of things. My doctrine my manner of life, my purpose, my faith, my long-suffering, my love, my perseverance, persecutions, afflictions. Now, that sounds like a long list, but it's really not. They're kind of all the same thing. The doctrine, the truth that Jesus has risen from the dead, inculcates, promises, regenerates inside of you a manner of life that is different than the world, which allows you to actually put up with suffering in a way the world cannot and it's a bizarre, bizarre thing because, and, and Paul will show us this by the end of this. At a certain point, 
you've gotten so fed up with the lies that the suffering the liars put on you ceases to make you stop. The suffering ceases to be a reason to not go. It becomes the fuel by which you go forward all the more harder. It's not vengeance. It's not like that, but it is. It's the good version. It's called courage. Courage, at the root of which is the word rage, at the root of which is the word hatred of evil. Just because human rage does not bring about the righteousness of God does not mean the courage of God can be, not be poured into you. And it will be and it is by the manner of life that Paul demonstrates. And what are we getting from that today? I and mean, we can go into the doctrine of the Trinity, justification by grace. We can go into all that. It's very important stuff. But right now, what is he showing? I'm in prison. I'm about to die. And the only thing I care about is that this guy, Caesar, who doesn't deserve it one bit, and all his household hear that Jesus has risen from the dead, and that's the salvation of the world. And if I can get that out of my mouth, crucify me. Just a drop of water from that in your life this week. Turn your heart around. All the suffering you endure. For what? For what? A better home? More food? Or to say he has risen one more time? Try it. Test me. See if it doesn't make a small difference. Well, evil men... Oh, no, no, no. Let's look at verse 12. If you're going to highlight a verse from chapter 3 that's not verses 1 and 2, highlight verse 12. Yes, and all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus... Sorry, you heard my ESV come out there a little bit. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So if you're going to be a Christian, you must understand or talk them into it. Point number three. That Christianity expects opposition. Always. Whenever you say he has risen, expect someone to say, no, he's not. But expect even more powerfully than that, someone else to say, Amen. And when someone says, no, he's not, again, avoid them and get together with those who say amen and then talk more about what the scriptures say. Christianity promises conversion to the scriptures by the truth of his resurrection. We expect opposition and we do not stop because we know that our promise is greater than that opposition. That again is your summary of points we've looked at so far from talking them into it. Uh, yeah, pushing that back then into verse 12. That we know the persecution and suffering of believing something no one else believes comes upon you when they don't believe it and they yell at you about it. Or they get mad at you about it or you live in a country where they won't even let you do it. In this, verse 13, evil men around us, imposters, that's false Christians, will go grow worse and worse. I think the ESV says from bad to worse. Deceiving and being deceived. There's like four things in there. We could spend five minutes on each, but let's just stick with deceiving and being deceived. I don't care what you think about the two guys who are running for president. If you hate them, if you love them, I don't care. I mean, I do, but I don't. For this point, I really don't. They are equal. Because whoever you are and whatever you think about Donald Trump or Joe Biden, if you think he's a liar at the top, moving this for evil, then you must know it's only because he's deceived himself. That he, too, has been blinded. And that but for the grace of God, you're right beside him. So when you vote against him, remember to say a prayer for him and his life. For he's but a man like you. End this then, again. Knowing that the world is deceived and deceiving and repeating it to itself ad nauseum. 
you, verse 14, must continue in these things which you know. Am I saying anything you haven't heard in church the last 40 years? Really? Does it sound new? <laughs> no, it's just like it's real now, right? Why is that? You continue in what you have known and learned and been assured of, knowing from who you learned it. Here, this is very personal. Timothy is being pointed to his family, his mother and his grandmother, who taught him the scriptures at childhood. And when he says scriptures here, please understand he means the Old Testament at this point. The New Testament is good. But he's referring to the Old Testament as the devotional material for the Christian life and for good reason. That from them, right, they are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And my challenge to you this year has been, remember this, to get into the Proverbs. To know that if you read the Proverbs every day and translate them every day, get into the Psalms every day and translate them every day, you're going to find the Bible alive in your life in ways you never imagined possible when you were just kind of taking notes on stuff and trying to remember some dogmatics. Dogmatics are important for defending things, but for your life, for your, your inner life of dwelling, you need to ponder, not move fast through as many books as you can, but get into one psalm for a week and learn it. Know what it says, be it. Again, that's how the scriptures make you wise for salvation in Jesus. And then know that all scripture, including that New Testament, is breathed out by God. The word there is made up by Paul. God-spirited, he says. All scripture is God-spirited. It's useful for doctrine. Again, how many times is he going to say doctrine? Truth that never changes, right? A thing which is a non-negotiable in reality. Scripture is for doctrine. It is for reproof. That is to correct other people. It is for correction. I think that's to correct yourself, right? Uh, and then it is also for instruction in righteousness. That's that way you are to go, the narrow path. That's the good path on which you cannot slip. It instructs you in that so that you, man of God, hear that as, if you're a pastor, of course you should be this. But if you're a man and a Christian, you should be this. If you're a woman and a Christian, you should be this. If you're a child and a Christian, you should aspire to be this. Huh? You, man of God, be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, where is that? The completion, the equipment. We got to keep reading. Look at what he says. Now, this is the last thing he's going to say. We've gone through all this stuff about say hi to Bob and everything. But here's the final thing. What can you not leave behind? I charge you, he says. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I mean, again, can you imagine this with my kids on my deathbed, right? I'm dying. Of, I, we know I'm dying slowly as my breath's going. And I'm about to go, son, son, come close to me, come close. I charge you before the judgment throne of Almighty God and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I die right after I say whatever I say next. That means something, right? Like that's more than just a small request. This is as big as it's ever going to get from St. Paul. I charge you. By the one who will judge the living and the dead and the appearing of his kingdom, verse 2. Preach the word. Now, don't hear that as just being for us pastors, please. It's true. Publicly to teach and preach, you're supposed to be ordained and sent. But for, forget that for a moment of that argument and realize you're supposed to have the word of God in your mouth. That's what Christians do. We believe it and we speak it. That's what preaching is. And you need one guy at the head, at the center, yelling it for the group. But all of us have that word in our mouths in season and out of season. This means when people want to hear it and when people don't want to hear it. Convince, that'd be talk them into it, right? Convince, rebuke, that means tell them when they're wrong. Exhort, that means tell them when they're right. With all long suffering, that means you bear the pain for the sake of the one who does not believe and for the sake of teaching, that is that you might share with them what to believe. For the time will come 
And you know this American church, it's already here, it's been here for 40 years at least. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will head up for themselves teachers, and they will turn away their ears and from truth to from truth and be turned aside to myths. And that's where our text then picks up uh, as we heard it read. Now, that bit about myths struck me this week, too, and it's not because I think what I'm about to say is wrong, but I think it puts it in a category that's worth pondering. And you can pick your hobby. I mean, it doesn't matter if it's, if it's you know, Cubs baseball. It, it doesn't matter if it's Portland Trailblazers basketball, which I haven't been following since, well, for a number of reasons. In any case, it doesn't matter. For me, it would be something like Magic the Gathering, the card game, or some sort of Lord of the Rings. It doesn't matter. Think about whatever your favorite thing is and how much you know about it and how driven you are by it, how you could quote it, how if somebody else says something wrong about it, You'll get a little uppity about, well, Frodo did not say that. Now, why don't we feel that way about the Bible? That's that's my question. Why don't you feel that way about your religion? Why don't I see us up in arms to know it, hungry more and more to be in it? And I'll confess, I'm as much of a failure in this as you are. I'm just not going to be okay with that in my own heart anymore. If that much makes sense. So I'm going to talk about it. I think, I think we're still supposed to like stuff on this planet. Like, I think baseball is still cool with God. I'm pretty sure. Apple pie, all that. Yeah. But I think when we worship it, he destroys it. And I think the way that we, we know not to worship it is we have a, at least as much curiosity in what is really true and going on around us with regard to his death, his resurrection, his return, all that, Paul's death, his words for us, how we are to pray these words every day and live our lives accordingly, we should at least give like a little bit of attention to that kind of passion in our lives. I can't make you do that. Only he can do that by promising it into us. But let me then close with, with this thought here. I think that's good enough for today. A little short this morning. Um, <laughs> you guys going to get spoiled. Uh Look again at verses 7 and 8 of 2 Timothy chapter 4. So these two verses are pretty well known, especially in Lutheran circles. I've kept the the faith, I've fought the fight, I've finished the race. These are are victorious kind of thoughts. But they're really um, much better (laughs) than they even sound in in the English. And it has everything to do with a little bit of grammar. So I'm going to teach you some grammar this morning in such a way that you don't have to remember anything I say, but it'll still make sense more at the end, right? So, so don't worry about the, the dots and tittles. But there is a type of past tense in Greek that we don't quite have in English, at least not as one word. We have to add like three words to our verbs to make this happen. But it's a way of saying that something happened way back then and is over. That thing that happened is done. However, it's happening is not over because its results will not be undone. So imagine if the sun stopped shining. We don't talk about the sun, the day the sun stopped shining as if it was today, sort of, right? Like it would carry on the effect. It would be a past thing that was still here present with us. That's the kind of way he's talking about this. So he's not saying to Timothy, as he faces almost certain death by the brutal mind of a murderer with all the power of God and the world in his hands, 
As he faces that, he doesn't say, I already fought the fight. I already ran the race. I've already kept the faith. He says, no, this is why I was born. Right now. To fight the fight. To run the race. To have run and keep running. To have fought and keep fighting. To have believed and keep believing. And that there, oh my goodness, the, the Greek, tain, piston, te, te, reka. You got a perfect with this word telos. This is like anybody who's a Greek nerd is going to geek out on the word telos. This is the it is finished word of John, right? That it is the completion of all things. What Paul is saying here is not just that he's believing, but that he has full custodianship of what he believes. And he intends to run with it and fight with it, even though they kill him. So that when he says, I am already being poured out like a drink offering. You see that part? How many drink offerings do you have? I don't have drink offerings. I have the Lord's Supper, which is a cup. It's, it's kind of connected to the old drink offerings of the Hebrew world. But we don't really do drink offerings. This would be like alcohol or a special mead that you're going to pour out onto the burning sacrifice. It's going to smoke. There's going to be incense, uh, all sorts of stuff like that. No drugs involved, by the way. The ancient Greek mystery cults did use drugs in their wine. I just learned this last week. Apparently, it's a myth floating around the Internet these days. Jesus put drugs in the wine. That's why Christianity happened. Uh, uh, you know, at a certain point, you know, aliens, whatever. Um, but <clears throat> getting back to it, they, they – the, the drink offering is Levitical code kind of stuff. We're talking, you know, 2,000 years before Christ kind of stuff where the priests are pouring out this as part of the sacrificial evening rites. And Paul, not only here but elsewhere in his letters, begins to conceive of his life as that, a cup being poured out unto fiery destruction. And he sees the filling up of that in his life whenever it happens as being proof that God's behind him and he can't die. And you might remember, I mean, he really goes through some amazing stuff this way. He gets hit with stones in the face so many times that he falls down and everyone thinks he's dead. The whole town who hated him so much, they threw stones at his face until he died, left him there because they thought he was. And he got up and he went on and he kept preaching. That's how important it was to him and how much he believed he couldn't die in it. And God just let him keep going. Now he knows he will, though. And he sees something else coming close. And this is where verse 8, I think, is so beautiful. I cannot tell you this is exegetically what the Bible has to mean. But I don't know how, as a human, this would not mean something to me if I was Paul. So let's just start with the text itself, and I'll give you the, the, the way the ESV goes in verse 8 there. The ESV says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord will give on that great day, the day of his appearing, and so on. The crown of righteousness. Now, this is not a common thing in the circles I grew up in, but I know that a lot of Christian circles in America think of heaven as being a place where you're going to get a crown, and your crown is going to reflect how good you were here in some way. That the number of people you convert to Christianity will be the number of gems or stones in your crown. Uh, and so, you know, if you really want to have a nice crown in heaven, you better get going. Um, what I've always been bothered by in that is just what it obviously does to the gospel. <laughs> it makes salvation your work. It makes your reason to love people a selfish one. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a diabolical teaching, like from the ground up. But it is founded on the idea that there are these crowns in Scripture and that Paul speaks pretty highly about them on a number of occasions. But what then is missing, I really think this is missing, is that if you go back and listen to the Greek at a different time in Paul's life, 
this word becomes very important. So there was a moment back when Paul uh, hung out with the Pharisees a lot more. His name was Saul. And a bunch of people laid down their cloaks at his feet one day as the orchestration of a flash mob to stone and brutally murder somebody else happened. And he watched and he looked on with approval as a man whose name, you know, is Stephen, which is the Greek word for crown. He watched a man named Crown get killed. And as that man named Crown was killed, he looked in hev- at heaven. He said, I see Jesus. He looked at the people around. And he said, Jesus, forgive them. Do you think Paul remembered that after he converted? I do. And I think his whole life was spent to some extent running both from and to that moment. Remembering Crown who died and remembering how he would see Crown again how Stephen will greet him someday and exchange a hand and say, welcome, brother, I forgive you. Henceforth is laid up for me justifications, Stephen. Now, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he's just talking about salvation itself. But something tells me, knowing Paul, he'd carried that guilt a long way. And the day he died, he knew he'd be free of it and seen both his Savior and the man who confessed salvation to him when he did not deserve it. Face to face. Far better than some crown in your chinky or gem in your chinky crown up there by the glassy sea. People, loved one, not for you, for them. I have reserved on my behalf the righteousness of Stephen, which the Lord on that great day will give to me the justifying judge, not only for me, but all who have loved, oh, one more to go home with, all who have loved his epiphaneon. Epiphaneon, you know it, epiphany, right? Right there in the Greek, it says his revealing, his epiphany, his manifestation. The word I'm going to start using a lot, I want you to use this one too. When you talk about Christianity to your friends and neighbors and you want to tell them something they're not ready for, why are you a Christian? Oh, I found enlightenment. Straight face, don't blink, don't laugh. When they say, really? Say, yeah, I found enlightenment. So Paul says, Not only me, but all who have learned to love his epiphane, his revelation, the pulling back of the curtain, the pouring of light upon something that was in darkness, enlightenment. We have it, my friends. You're about to eat and drink it again. He, greater than you, even when you resist, is going to promise and follow you out into that world. So that whatever lies and temptations you are facing this week, whatever they might be, those battles you have that nobody knows anything about but you and maybe those closest to you, he does. And he's with you. And his word, insofar as it is in you and coming out of you, cannot lead you wrong. Will not lead you wrong. A people set apart, yeah? Set apart to steward your life. More of that to come in the coming weeks. Let us go to the feast.